Well, good morning. We are in Luke chapter 18 this morning, so turn that way in your Bibles. And let's start with prayer. Father God, we are so grateful for your intense love for us, that you do call us sons and daughters. You have caused us to be reconciled to you and caused us to be able to have that relationship. And so we're just so, so thankful for all that you've done for us. We pray this morning, Lord, that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us and that we would understand your heart, your mind, and your desire for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Now imagine, if you will, a government that is corrupt, where evil people do as they please, and it seems that there's no one to stand against them. And I know that you think, hey, you know, I don't have to imagine that. I, I experience it every day. And somewhat you do, but in order for us to understand the first parable that Jesus is going to be looking at today, we need to understand that there are billions of people who endure so much worse than, than what we have. There are people who, who, I mean, we can't excuse what we have today that's corruption, but the sovereignty that the judges and the people have over people is just horrific to the point where it almost seems like our corruption is utopian because it is so much worse. Understand that in the time of Jesus, the judges had so much power. They had so much sovereignty. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word that is translated God most of the time, Elohim, is also used of judges because they had the power to put people to death. And so a quick note with that, within the Roman Empire, only the Romans were able to do that. All the conquered uh, nations that were a part of it, they didn't have the right to do that anymore. But still, the Roman official could put people to death. Well, let's pick it up. Let's look at Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 2, it says, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect any person, Yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When those who are in a position to protect the innocent fail to do so, the innocent become victims. And there are people who will do harm. Again, this is obvious for us today, but beginning with Rome and, and with Caesar, and then with uh, Herod the king, and then with different appointed judges, and then with governors, and then with prefects like Pontius Pilate, the lack of concerns for human life, let alone for human rights, it, it was just atrocious, the things that they would go through. The most peon of any Roman soldier had the authority of Caesar. And to defy any of them, whether it's Caesar or this, this soldier, the punishment for that was death. So the wealthy 
would purchase justice from, from kings, from judges. And so this widow is marginalized. So everyone listening to Jesus as he's saying this, everyone who listens to the stories about Jesus saying this, everybody reading about Jesus saying this in the first century understood exactly what he was talking about. Because everybody there and everybody having anything to do with it either had experienced this, knew somebody, or knew about somebody who had been imprisoned or possibly even put to death by Rome. And so, again, this is so much worse than where we are today so far. As a citizen of the Roman Empire, though, as probably a Jewish woman, she had the right to be able to go to the judge and explain her case, to say, this person is, is coming against me. They are, they are harming me. They are bringing me to the place of, of death. And so I need you to do something for me. So, I mean, for, for some people, no is an answer. But it wasn't for this woman. Not for this widow. She was, in fact, willing to risk execution because, I mean, she's going to die anyway if she doesn't get some relief against her opponent. And so when we talk about him being an unrighteous judge, we see the root of it is that he doesn't respect any person and he has no fear of God. In other words, he doesn't think that anybody can do anything about it here on earth, and he's probably right, but he also doesn't think that there's any judgment coming also. And that's how it is with wicked people. They don't think that there's ever going to be any judgment later. They will never be accountable. But they're wrong. But in this story, it's all about this widow in her quest to get justice. And after nagging him day after day after day after day after day, he grows weary and decides that it's in his best interest to give her what's in her best interest. Because she just keeps on bothering him. And the word bother here, it's not like a mosquito bothers you. You know how after a while you just finally get frustrated and you've got to kill that thing? It's not like that. The, the terminology here is like a boxer who just keeps on getting punched by his opponent and being wearied because of that. So it's not compassion. It's not a sense of duty. It's not righteousness. It's not morality. It's selfishness through and through, just like everything else that he has going on in his life. And so perhaps you have or know of somebody who has gone and tried to get justice from our justice system, and it hasn't worked out the first time, and so they have to go and keep on going in, in order to try to get justice. If that's the case, usually what happens is we go from judge to judge to court to different court and all, and it's seldom the same judge or court twice in a row. And, and so we're the ones that get weary instead of the judge. Well, I want us to go back and see the purpose of this parable because maybe you notice that I put off verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now he was telling him a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. Now rumor has it that Jesus gets us. We'll see in this parable and in the next parable as well that, yeah, he does, but perhaps not in the way that the Super Bowl ad expressed it to us. Jesus is our high priest, 
and he is our high priest because as a human being, he became human for us. As a human, he is able to understand the things going on in our life, the frustrations going on in our life, but also the frailties of our life. So are you discouraged? See, discouraged means that we have lost courage, that, uh, that we the, have the courage that we had that we no longer have. And that can only happen if we lose or if we lack faith. When Jesus returns, will he find faith is the question that he asks. Now, it's easy to get bummed out at the things going on in the world today because there's so much evil around us, right? But we're told that in the last days that evil men will become worse and worse. Shouldn't we gain faith by understanding that what Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 is going on right now? This is what we're experiencing right now. Shouldn't we gain faith from that? Shouldn't we gain faith from understanding when Jesus said to take courage because he has overcome the world, overcome the evil one? We should gain courage from that. But we lose courage when our feet is planted in this place, in this world, in this life. We lose courage when our home is temporary here on the earth instead of eternal in the heavens. We lose courage when our desires are for comfort rather than for God's glory. But we gain courage when we continue to walk towards eternity. We gain courage when we cannot be satisfied by that which is decaying around us. We gain courage when our life is Christ and to die is gain. But we lose courage when we do not see the answer to our prayers. More specifically, when we do not see our answer to our prayers. See, we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And sometimes we don't see that, and we can become discouraged with that. And see, it's not about nagging him. It's not about having a temper tantrum in Walmart until you get your way. He hears, and he does avenge his children. But two things with that. First of all, there are a lot of times where we have moving parts involved with what God is trying to do for us, especially when we're praying for our loved ones that are lost, right? When we're praying for them, man, we want them to be saved now, don't we? Not just because of eternity, because of, of the pain that we go through on earth now when we're not following after Christ. And so we want that, and, and we want it now. But there are so many things that are happening that have to come in order for that to be brought about. There are situations that need to come to pass to cause their hearts to become receptive. And the second thing is that Sometimes we pray for the wrong stuff, James says. Not for our loved ones. We should always pray for our loved ones. That is never the wrong thing. But there are some times when we will pray for things that are for us instead of for God's glory. Now with this, there are some commentators, you know, not the elite-taters, the commentators, that um, are, are saying that this praying for the avenging is related to the fact that there are people who are being persecuted within the church at this time. Well, there are people being persecuted in the church now around the world, right? 
But their thought is that it has to do with that. And that's why it's talking about Jesus finding faith when he returns. So it is indeed the case for this. But since it is, the prayer for us that God would destroy our enemies, that's the wrong prayer. The right prayer is God change the hearts of my enemies. Cause them to come to know you. Cause them to be saved. The prayer for my enemies should be for their salvation, not for their destruction. And the apostles, when they were persecuted, they prayed for boldness, not for deliverance. And so that's how we should be also. Perhaps this is why Jesus asks if there will be faith when he returns. But along with that, it tells us clearly that Jesus will return. Our courage should be built up knowing that he is returning. And when he returns, it's for us. So all of these things should bring about courage for us. But Jesus knows what it is to be frustrated in this world. He lived in this world. He understands what it is to be around wicked, evil people doing the things that they wanted to do. He understands from our crying out to him day and night. And he knows our hearts and the frustration and the pain that we have with that. And so he promises to deliver us. But understand, the longer that we suffer, the more sons and daughters come to the Father. What if Jesus had come the day or the week before you came to faith in Christ? That would have been bad, right? And so as we suffer, as we, we long for eternity, we also have to understand that we are not so interested in our own comfort but in God's glory, right? It says, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And again, this isn't like the nagging widow. Remember a few weeks ago, we used this as an illustration, as one of those parables of contrast, not of comparison. There are parables that say the kingdom of God is like this, or God is like this. Well, this parable is saying God is not like this. God is not like this wicked judge, because God is not wicked. He is just. And so our crying out now is, Maranatha, Lord, return quickly. Will it be faith, though? Will it be trusting that God sustains us in all of these things? Will it be courage? Will it be us being about our commission to reach the world? And as Landon was saying last week, eternity began at conception, and it continues forward. We have this life alone to choose our destination, whether we're going to be with the Father or whether we're going to be separated from him. And soon enough, in God's perfect timing, we will be delivered from all things evil. Loving and serving God in our suffering is an offering that we can only give this side of death. And so it is an offering. Well, next Jesus shows us what faith is and what faith is not. It's a story about someone who does everything right according to their own standard. And also someone who realizes that they fall so desperately short of God's standard. Verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pray twice a week. I'm sorry. I fast twice a week. I pay tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And both of these men are praying to their gods. Look at the prayer of the Pharisee. In King James, in verse 11, it says, the Pharisee stood and began praying with himself. Praying with himself. He is his own God. He is the standard. He is his own goodness. He is the sovereign one who decides what's right and what's wrong for himself. And five times he says, I, I, it's all about him. And though he addresses God, he's not talking to God. He's talking to the people around him. He's trying to make other people understand how great he is. He's validating himself, and at the same time, he's showing contempt for this sinner because he wants to make sure that this sinner hears him also say that he is righteous and that the sinner is not. Did you notice that he said this sinner? He didn't say a sinner. He said this one right here. And we can be impressed by how people pray, can't we? We, we can say, wow, that was powerful prayer. In fact, been in, in prayer meetings where, where someone will pray and someone else will say, wasn't that a powerful and anointed prayer? And I'll reply to them and say, was it scriptural? Because the vocabulary may have been impressive. The passion, undeniable. But if it wasn't scripture, then the only power it has is to deceive. Charles Spurgeon said, oh, that we pray deeper with fewer words. Because a lot of people think that it's the power of their words that causes stuff to happen instead of the power of God through faith. Now, it's not our words. It's not what we do in prayer. That's witchcraft, guys. That's, that's enchantment incantations, when we use our words to cause something to happen in the spiritual realm. It's what God does for us. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooks, adulterers, and even this tax collector. Is this how you feel? Is this what you trust in when you pray? That God owes you something because you are more righteous than somebody else? He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And remember, he tells this, this parable to some people who were trusting themselves, thinking that they were righteous. Where is your trust? Where is your trust? I am a lousy speller. There are times I'll be typing along and spell check says, I have no idea where you're going with that, buddy. I just, I, I haven't got a hint for you. 
whatever. One of those words that I use a lot, especially in the New Testament, is Pharisees. And I'm like, P-H-A-R, um, um, until I realized that there's an I right in the middle of Pharisees, because I am just like the Pharisee sometimes. The Pharisee is not trusting in God, certainly not trusting in Jesus here, but do we? Do we trust in Jesus completely or do we start to trust in our, ourselves? Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and not to leave the other undone. You tithe, big deal. You ought to. Because tithe doesn't begin with you. It begins with God who gives you the opportunity to be able to tithe. This man said, of all that I get, I tithe of all that I get. What he should have said is, all that you graciously provide for me. I am not like these other people, the swindlers, crooks, uh, adulterers, and tax collectors. But he was exactly like these people. He was just as lost as these other people. In fact, more so because he didn't realize it. He didn't realize how lost he was. He was, I mean, Jesus has already talked to the, the Pharisees. And the average Pharisee was a swindler, was crooked, was an adulterer, was sinful just like the tax collector. He just hid it better. Remember Simon the Pharisee from a few weeks ago? He invited Jesus over to his house for lunch, but he didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, didn't have his feet washed, treated him with contempt from the moment that he got to the house. And then a woman came who was a sinful woman, and she wanted to talk to Jesus. She wanted to, to, to thank him, and she, she cried and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Remember that? And what did he say? What did Simon say? He said, I can't believe that you would allow this woman to touch you. If he was a prophet, he would know better than to allow her to do that. And Jesus came back with the fact that though her sins were many, they are forgiven. And with that, he insinuates that Simon the Pharisees, his sins, which may not have been as many, were not forgiven. So he actually has more sin. And so that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisee in this parable. If he doesn't see his need for mercy, will he receive it? If he doesn't cry out for mercy, will he receive it? If he trusts in himself instead of mercy, will he receive it? So the reality is, he was not at all like this tax collector because his sin was not forgiven. He was not the one that returned to his house justified. It was the tax collector who was. And so, yes, Jesus absolutely gets us. He understands that we're selfish, that we're sinful, and that we are in desperate need of mercy and of being saved. And verse 13 the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And here we see that it is an illustration and not a true story. 
because even standing far away was not something that the tax collector was allowed to do. The priests and the rulers of the temple and stuff, they would not allow a tax collector to come neither for prayer nor for salvation. They were not allowed to repent because they had done the unpardonable sin in their eyes. So they couldn't have possibly allowed this tax collector into the temple at this time. But Jesus is showing that God never turns away the repentant. Again, are we like the Pharisee or are we like God? The Pharisee beat his chest like Tarzan with contempt. But the tax collector, he beat his chest in contrition, even calling himself the sinner, agreeing, yes, I am the sinner. Perhaps hearing the Pharisee and agreeing with him. And then what he said is so powerful because he said, be merciful to me, which in English is like, oh, that's cool. But in the, in the Greek here, what it literally says is, let your propitiation bring mercy to me. Let your propitiation bring mercy to me. That's a big word, isn't it? And we think, well, the Bible doesn't really use that word much, does it? But it actually does quite a bit, and we'll see some of them in a little bit. But remember the Ark of the Covenant? If not, you know, watch Indiana Jones tonight and, and get an idea of it. But on the Ark of the Covenant, you had the angels, and between the wings of the angels was the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled and the sin was eradicated. It's also called the propitiation. That's what that is called right there. And so in Romans chapter 3, we'll start with a verse that you have probably memorized, but you may not have any idea what comes after it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And then in 1 John chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9, By this the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So where is your trust? Is it in Christ? Then why do you pretend to be righteous? Why do you beat your chest in front of the world saying, I am righteous, and treat the world with contempt, declaring that you're better than them? But that's what the church does so often. You just prove to be a hypocrite to the one yet to believe by telling them that they must be righteous before coming to Christ. Now, countless times I've answered the question from people, why should I become a Christian when Christians are hypocritical sinners? Well, the answer for that is, because you're a hypocritical sinner. See, none of them uh, will accept their sin. They all deny their sin. 
And if I say, well, I'm going to deny my sin because these other people still sin, that, that doesn't work out. It makes me a hypocrite also. So yes, sure, we still sin. I still sin. But the hypocrisy is pretending that I don't. If I came before you pretending that I never sin, well, you'd see through it because you know me, but that would make me a hypocrite, would it not? My sin should declare to the world that I am a sinner saved by grace and that you as sinners can be saved by grace also. Not that I'm better than you in any way. And again, not once, but constantly being saved by grace. I am no better than anyone else. Being a Christian does not empower me to now be able to trust in my own righteousness. God's Spirit must continually work in me and deliver me from sin and from self. And of course, we must actively receive what the Holy Spirit is trying to do inside of us, not simply say, well, oh well, I'm a sinner. You know, sinners will be sinners. Boys will be boys, whatever. Are you trusting in the cross of Jesus for mercy today or in what you can do? And I saw a good illustration of this last Monday. A guy was asking whether we truly trust in Christ or not. And he gave an illustration about, I have a ticket for you to a concert. It's free and it's yours. And come in and I will take you into the concert. But if on the day of the concert you come and you've bought your own ticket, have you trusted me? No, you trusted yourself. And a lot of people will try to do that for themselves. God gives us salvation. He provides salvation for us. Jesus purchased it. It's free and it's ours. But if we try to use our own works or our religiosity or our best efforts to get salvation, have we trusted Jesus? Do we continue to trust Jesus? Your faith is useless if it's not Christ alone. And in this season of Lent and growing up when Lent was so really very important to us and, and, and understanding that the, the idea was that through Lent and through my penance and through the, the stuff that I do, it causes me to be able to be worthy of what God wants to do for me. See, through that, we get away from faith in Christ alone. Well, there's a lot of debate today whether we should call ourselves saints or sinners. There's whole books written on it. On the one hand, we know that our sin is forgiven, right? That we are justified, that we are reconciled to the Father, and we are saints. We are his holy ones because he's made us holy. But on the other hand, we also understand that... We still sin. And sometimes we can feel like frauds by calling ourselves saints when we also know that we're sinners, right? And some people will say, when Satan brings up your sins and tell you, tells you what a horrible sinner you are, you should call him a liar. But I'm of a school of thought that says, when Satan brings up your sins and tells you what a horrible sinner you are, you should tell him, man, you have no idea. You've missed so many of them because you don't even know what I'm thinking because we are sinners. But the propitiation has been paid for through the blood of Jesus and it brings mercy to me.
Don't start with agreeing with, with Satan. Start with that, but then continue on with he's paid for our mercy. I've mentioned several times over the past couple of years that in regards to our salvation, we are saved, we will be saved, but that we are being saved because that's the tense that the, the word is used in, in Scripture. And so with this understanding that it is a constant and continual process going on for us to beat our breast and say, your propitiation supplies mercy is a perfectly appropriate prayer. Bring mercy to me because of what Christ has done on the cross. It is a perfectly acceptable response to mercy today, which is new every morning. So let's put these two parables together and see what we have with it. Does Jesus get us? Well, first of all, we know that God hears us. He knows that there's evil in this world and that it wears on us. He knows that we are prone to become discouraged. He knows that we need to be avenged from our adversary. And Jesus says that he will bring about justice quickly. And like we saw in the book of Revelation, quickly doesn't mean that it's going to happen in this short duration of time. It means that it's sudden. And when it happens, it's going to happen completely. So don't lose heart because things are just as Scripture says. We need to understand that in these last days, things are going to play out just like Scripture said and that we need to stay strong in them. But the second thing is that God provides. And what we really need is mercy. Not a Mercedes, mercy. This Jesus provided for us on the cross to eradicate our sin as he became our propitiation, right? For Jesus to get us and not offer us a way of forgiveness would be the ultimate evil. Because his getting us does not mean that he tolerates sin. It means that he became sin in order to destroy it. And that's where the Super Bowl ad and the people who, who brought it about fall short. He gets us, he understands, he loves us, and he became our sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's what he gets about us. So does he understand what you're going through? Yes, absolutely. Does he know that the, the answer for that is mercy? Yes, he absolutely does. And so whether you've never come to Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation, or if you've been walking with Christ for, for decades, our prayer should still be that your propitiation supply mercy for me, right? I want us to do something different today. Can you just stand up with me? And can we just recognize that we need mercy today? He tells us that he uh, forgives us our sins and then cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but we still have that unrighteousness and we still need that mercy so as we close in prayer this morning, would you just call out for mercy? And would you recognize that it's the propitiation that Jesus paid for that brings about that mercy? Well, Father God, we do thank you for your word. In it, we see our need for you. We need, see our need for mercy. And without the blood of Jesus, mercy could not be given to us. And so we thank you for that. And so this morning, Lord God, I just pray 
mercy. Have mercy on me. Let your propitiation constantly bring mercy to my life, Lord Jesus. Let it be something where I recognize my shortcomings, but your greatness, your grace, what you've paid for, and let me become like you because of your mercy, not because of my own goodness. Only through you can I be justified. And may we, Lord, go home today justified because we have, like that tax collector, cried out for the mercy that you have paid for. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Father God, I pray that we would take this understanding with us and that it would be our heart as we pray every day that we would call out for your mercy knowing that it's paid for and that you desire it for us. Let us receive your mercy in humility because those who humble themselves will be exalted. But if we exalt ourselves, Lord, we will not receive that, that mercy. We give you thanks for this time, Lord. Be with us through this week and bring these things to our remembrance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys. Have a great day.